Hey everyone, it's Marielle. And before we get to the show, I want to warn you. What you are about to hear contains explicit language, adult themes, and may not be suitable for all listeners. Discretion is strongly advised. Enjoy the show. Trying very hard to stay close to the mic. Has someone complained? It's not natural. No, I just, when I'm listening to it, I'm like, God, I wish I would have been in the mic so we could have picked that up better. But I sometimes stuff- we say gems like really quiet under our breath and it's like, damn. Welcome to the women of death row. Hello. Speaking is Amanda. She's back, bitches. Um, hi, it's me. Put your Marielle. hands together for Marielle, who produced and everything that bonus episode, which is really interesting. Did you listen to it? Yeah. I listened to it while I was making coffee and eating breakfast. Yeah, there was so much. I'll... But I think you hit some, like, some really good points. Good job. Thank you. There was something I was going to say about that, but of course I didn't make a note. I didn't make any notes. <laughs> Uh, we're free balling this episode. <laughs> we don't know. <laughs> you go first. Cool. Let me. Open Maybe up. we should start drinking and recording again. <laughs> Did we? Which episode? Like the first three, I think. I went back and listened to the Lisa Montgomery one. You could definitely tell I was smoking in London. I'm like this. <laughs> That's hilarious. All right. I was like, pa- speaking of Lisa Montgomery, we got to come back to that when we're done. That's going to be some of our digressions is about <laughs> so Lisa cool. Montgomery. So cool. Marielle has some. Anyway, so today <laughs> I'm going to share with you um, some information about Kelly Gissendaner. Gisson, I don't know how to say her Where name. Where's she from? Georgia. Maybe How's this spelled? G-I-S-S-E-N-D-A-N-E-R. I don't know what it is, but I'm I don't, why do we keep video? pretty decent with linguistics. Nice flex. <laughs> 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 and also anyone listening to this podcast is like bitch what i just been i've always been like a natural speller yeah i know what you mean i feel like it's me Tyson Danner. i feel like you're right and i want to hear it because i didn't type <laughs> <laughs> i hate that shit okay they'll one say of, it one someone's gonna to say, say it. it barring a last minute stay of execution georgia tonight will put to death the first woman since 1940. This morning, her attorneys filed an emergency request for a 90-day stay with the get it. For, uh, pardons and paroles uh, not to execute Kelly Gissendaner. They've already Gissendaner. Oh, denied her clemency, though. Edit out all the shit I said about how right I am. <laughs> Keep it in. Okay. <laughs> I will be now sharing with you the reason... <laughs> <laughs> I lost me. Did you just have a fucking stroke? <laughs> I forgot what I was doing. <laughs> All right. So I'm going to tell you about Kelly Gissendaner. Was that correct? Gissendaner. Gissendaner. I got a lot of my info from this website called thoughtco.com, and it was called The Profile of a Husband Killer. I did too. That's what? a great source. It was awesome. Mm-hmm. Profile of Husband Killer Kelly Gissendaner. Um, also, Wikipedia. And then a Gwinnett Daily Post had like a some little a little timeline going on. And then I have Wikipedia and then the New York Times article. So Dig in. Ready up? Here I go. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a long week. I might have to three pee. day weekend. Oh God. Thank God. So now um I'm gonna tell you about <laughs> I'm sorry. Okay. I also use some of these court documents. So this first part I'm gonna tell you about 
Gissendainer versus the state of Georgia. This is where I got this information. The evening of February 7th, 1997, Kelly Gissendainer. Can we say her name anymore? Just say Kelly. Kelly drove... (laughs) Um, Greg Bruce Owen to her family's home in Auburn, Georgia. Kelly provided Greg with a large knife and a nightstick. Kelly left Greg at the home she shared with her husband, Doug Gissendaner, and three kids. Uh-oh. After dropping Greg off at her home, Kelly dropped her three kids off at her mom's house and then went to a friend's house. Together, Kelly and her group of friends went out to a local club. Doug Gissendaner arrived home. Um, between 10 and 11 p.m. He'd been helping out a church friend fix his truck. And um, when he got home, Greg Owen confronted him from behind as he was locking the door. Greg pressed a knife to Doug's throat and forced him into um, his own truck. So Doug's truck where um, Doug was forced by Greg to drive to like this remote location uh, in a wooden area right off the specific road, like Luke Edwards Road near present day entrance of a park. Fuck, don't do it, man. Doug was forced by Greg to walk into the woods and kneel. Warning. Greg then beat Doug with a nightstick and then stabbed Doug repeatedly in the back and neck, which killed him. Greg Owen then robbed Doug Gissender of his wallet, watch, and wedding room. Kelly Gissendaner returned to her home around midnight from the night out with her friends which was around the same time the murder the murder of her husband occurred in the woods. Mm-hmm. Kelly sent Greg a page with, like, a page on his pager with... Oh. Um, Wait, what year was this? 97. Okay. With a numeric code, and I wrote 143LOL. <laughs> <laughs> that wasn't it. <laughs> Before driving to the woods to meet Doug. I'm sorry, to meet Greg. When Kelly arrived, she asked Greg if Doug was dead and then inspected Doug's body with a flashlight. Kelly provided Greg with some kerosene that he then used to burn Doug's truck. The two left the scene in Kelly's car and then Greg disposed of the nightstick, the knife, his clothing, and Doug's jewelry and wallet that he stole. Um, He threw it in the garbage. Now I'll share with you Kelly's early life, which provides some context to her. So Kelly Berkshire was born in rural Georgia in 1968 to Maxine and Larry Berkshire. Kelly and Doug grew up um, living polar opposite lives. So Doug Gissendaner's family was really close and supportive, and his parents devoted a lot of time to him and his siblings. But Kelly's upbringing wasn't as idyllic. Maxine and Larry liked to drink. They used speed. Probably some meth, and they fought. So Maxine and Larry divorced after four years of marriage, partly due to Maxine's infidelity. And just eight days after the divorce was final, she remarried a man named Barry, Billy Wade. Barry Wade. The cat just crawled in this drawer. Uh, Maxine and Billy's marriage was no different than her marriage to Larry. They drank a lot, but um, he was more abusive than Larry. And Billy would lock Kelly and her siblings in a bedroom while he would beat their mom. His temper was also taken out on the kids. And during um, the time he and Maxine were married, he choked Kelly and he and Maxine would beat her with like whatever they could get their hands on. Jesus Christ. Yeah, it was really sad. But what Kelly reported that the emotional and verbal abuse is what was most difficult for her to cope with. Um, Her mom's husband would call her stupid, ugly, and that she was unwanted and unloved. And according to the Gwinnett Daily Post article, her stepfather, they quoted, who I'm guessing was Billy, Mm because they don't mention any of her mom's other marriages, also molested her from age 10. And he slept behind her for a number of months because he said his own bed was uncomfortable. Oh, God. Yeah, which means he would have 
there was opportunity to assault her every night. Ugh. Yeah. She was also raped by a neighbor's stepfather around that same time. And when Kelly was 12, she began spending summers at her grandmother's where her uncle also sexually abused her. Fuck. And due to that abuse, Kelly attempted to escape reality through living out fantasies in her mind, which probably is more like she was disassociating yeah. from the trauma. Around the same time when Kelly was around 10, she was reunited with her dad, Larry. However, the relationship didn't go how she had hoped. By that time, her dad had already remarried and had another daughter. So he made it her feel like there was no room for her. When Kelly was about to go into high school... Her mom and Billy divorced. Maxine packed up the kids and they moved to Winder, Georgia. Since, you know, <laughs> just a cat in the drawer. <laughs> so being at a new school, she had a hard, Kelly had a hard time making friends. Also, I should mention she was already six feet tall by the time she was in high school. Whoa. Yeah. Instead of going out with her friends and like getting that high school experience, she didn't go to dances. She worked at McDonald's in the drive-thru. So she spent her high school years Hustling. working. Mm -hmm. Okay. Maxine, Kelly's mom was also very strict Kelly wasn't allowed to bring friends home or even date. Sounds familiar. Mm. <laughs> the kids at school often called her trailer trash. Um, but there was this one girl, Mitzi Smith, who befriended Kelly. Mitzi. What a sweet name. Kelly got pregnant her senior year of high school, but she was able to hide it for like a, almost six months of her pregnancy. And she didn't even tell her best friend who the dad was. She didn't tell anybody. So, yeah. yeah. And she gave birth to a son in 1986. A few months after her baby was was born kelly married jeff banks however they divorced after six months the marriage ended after larry her dad chased him off with a gun for not passing the dinner rolls <laughs> wow i need to remove this underwear it is giving me monstrous wedgies <laughs> god imagine huh. someone not passing you the dinner rolls shit i'm fucking chase you down too we're fighting so by the time kelly was 19 she moved back to her mom's home with her baby but kelly could not just get away from any sort of drama she was arrested for shoplifting physically abused by fucking larry couldn't keep a job and began self-medicating with alcohol damn by march 1989 kelly and doug gissendanner met through a mutual friend it was in Love at first sight for Doug. <laughs> <laughs> Why couldn't I say it? And he also kind of grew fond of Kelly's son, too. Aww. Like, he loved the pair. Kelly and Doug married in September 1989. Kelly was four months pregnant. Doug's family didn't like Kelly, though, but because she was four months pregnant, they accepted her. Mm -hmm. After the wedding, Kelly and Doug both lost their jobs and then moved in with her mom. Oh. The drama immediately began and Doug wasn't really sure how to deal with such a abusive family. Yeah. Because his family was more like they didn't do that. They mm -hmm. talked about their shit. So Doug ended up joining the army, which he really liked and became well respected. He also was making enough money to cover the bills. So they were getting out of their financial shit. But Kelly wasn't able to manage that money he was making really well. And so eventually his parents did have to bail him out. Damn. August 1990. Kelly gave birth to their first daughter. And at that time, Doug was stationed in Germany. And then all Kelly and the kids met him there. While Doug was on assignments in Germany, Kelly would just throw parties and like have a bunch of affairs, wow. which, you know, caused a lot of turmoil. Mm -hmm. So Kelly and the kids eventually went back to Georgia. Doug came back in 91. Apparently being with Kelly became like so miserable. And then Kelly decided she wanted to join the army. Turned out she hated it. The only way to get out was get pregnant. So she got pregnant and the father of that child died from cancer whoa mm -hmm. yeah 
So then when she went into the army, her and Doug got a divorce. After she had the third baby, she moved back with her mom and began job hopping and dating multiple guys again. She ended up getting a job at the International Readers League of Atlanta. I don't know what that is. (laughs) Kelly and her boss, Belinda Owens, they started hanging out and became really close friends. And it's through her boss, Belinda, that she met Greg Owens, who... Uh... I mentioned at the beginning and they yeah. became inseparable, but they their relationship didn't last long because Kelly would throw these tantrums, I guess. Mm. And it started to mirror like her mom's relationships with her husbands. And then in, in December 94, Kelly and Doug got back together and his parents weren't thrilled, but they began going to church and working on their financial situation. Uh, but Kelly could just kept spending money. So it was the same shit. And then his parents refused to help them out anymore. Um, they got married in May 95, but then they divorced again in September 95. So, okay. So then in 96, they got back together. And at this point, Doug was like, I'm fully committed. We're going to get the house. They got a house in a desirable subdivision. They couldn't afford it. Apparently, he got some high interest loan. Oh, man. And But he wanted to be one of those dads that was like, took care of the house and the maintenance and the yard and played with mm-hmm. the kids. But when they got the house and everything... Kelly started seeing Greg again. Oh, God. Yeah. All right. So now we're back to February 7th, 97. Kelly goes out with her friends. Doug is helping a friend with a truck. Doug gets home around 10 to 11, where Greg meets him with the knife. Kelly leaves the club around 12 a.m., and she told everyone that she had, like, a bad feeling about something. Kelly reports Mm. she got home after 12 and went to bed. She woke up the morning. Doug still wasn't there. After making some calls, she called his parents, but no one had seen or heard from him. And then by mid-morning on February 8th, 97, she filed a missing persons report. The investigation into Doug's whereabouts began February 8th, 1997, the same day Kelly filed a missing person report. So that's when search groups started going out to try and find Doug. Kelly was the first person to speak to investigators. She described a problem-free relationship with Doug. However, investigators began interviewing like his family friends and they reported like polar opposite yeah they dropped greg and then they also dropped greg's greg owen's name a few times like she'd been seeing this dude too the following sunday after greg disappeared his partially burned truck was discovered on a dirt road in gwinnett county the day his truck was found family and friends gathered at his parents home but kelly decided to take the kids to the circus which Mm -hmm. doug's parents thought was odd but they also hated kelly i don't know take the kids to the circus it's a nice thing to do i get yeah like who knows what the kids were going through maybe she was trying to cheer them up i don't think anyone asked right so kelly did a few more tv interviews this is what i think is weird the following tuesday which was four days after her husband disappeared i just think it's weird when someone like intentionally goes to the cameras and investigators and stuff right so 12 12 days after he disappeared, Doug's body was found one mile away from where his burned truck was found. He was nearly unrecognizable. Animals had already started getting to him. He was found dead, kneeling, bent over at the waist, and his forehead was lying in the dirt. Mm. He was identified by autopsy and dental records. And the autopsy reported that he was stabbed four times in the neck, back, and shoulder. So during the investigation, Kelly asked to meet with investigators to quote-unquote clarify what she said in her initial statement. She shared that the marriage wasn't unproblematic. And during one of the separations, she, she was seeing Greg Owen. So she fessed up to that. She reported that Greg... Greg had threatened to kill Doug when Kelly and Doug got back together. And then when asked about contact with Greg, she shared that they talked every once in a while, but only because he called her all the fucking time. Mm. But it didn't, this newfound honesty she has didn't do much 
in terms of like ruling her out of the murder investigation. And she continued to just do weird things. People reported like during Doug's actual funeral, his family and their friends waited for her for over an hour. They found out that she made a pit stop to Cracker Barrel to do some shopping and get something to eat. Wow. So Greg Owens, though, had a solid alibi because he got his roommate to say that he was home. Mm. However, investigators brought him back in for questioning when his roommate ended up recanting the alibi. Dang. So when investigators suspect started to suspect Kelly's firsthand knowledge of her husband's murderer, investigators suspected Kelly, though, that she like had firsthand knowledge of what happened to her husband. Investigators had full phone records that showed 47 calls between Greg and Kelly wow. on the days leading up to the murder, 18 of which were initiated by Kelly, which contradicts that Greg was, like, blowing up her phone. Greg initially refused to answer questions, but then they threw a plea deal at him. He would get life with parole after 25 years rather than the death penalty. So he took that deal and agreed to testify against Kelly. Greg told defectives... (laughs) Greg told detectives that Kelly planned the whole thing. She wanted to make sure that Doug bought the house and that they moved in for a while before he was killed and she also wanted to make sure that she was able to secure an alibi when greg asked her why not just divorce him he said kelly said that he would never leave her alone Uh uh-huh so greg then went on to explain that on the night of the murder kelly picked him up at the apartment his apartment drove to our house let him inside with the nightstick and the knife she instructed him to make it look like a robbery so that's why he took her his wallet watch and wedding ring and then she left and went to her friend's house and then that's when greg waited for doug to come home so after he killed doug greg drove around in doug's car until he got the page from kelly with the code that would indicate that the murder was done i don't know why she sent the code though that doesn't make sense right but that's how i read it she then met greg at the scene of the murder to make sure doug was for sure dead like she went through there and looked at him with a flashlight and then there's like reports of how i'm reminding you new appointment Thanks, Alexa. (laughs) I'm reminding you, (laughs) bitch. All right. Do not talk to her like that. Okay, Alexa. Thank you. Anytime, Mariel. Hope you enjoyed your Friday. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, maybe I have to do something on my phone. (laughs) You need a lot of reminders. Uh, I'm reminding you. I get it. Okay. So the kerosene is in question of how it got there. But either way, Kelly was involved in give it, getting it there somehow. And then they burned his truck. So afterwards, they agreed that they shouldn't be seen for together for a while. That's a good idea. Yeah. So detectives arrested Kelly after midnight at her house and they searched the house. When Kelly was arrested, she had a brand new story. Mm. Kelly admitted that she saw Greg the night of the murder. She picked him up after he called her that night and told her what he did to Doug. She t- she reported that Greg threatened to kill her and the kids if he went to the cops. So the detective and prosecutors didn't believe her story about Greg threatening her. Kelly Gissendaner was charged with murder, felony murder, and possession of a knife during the commission of a felony. She continued to say that she was innocent and even turned down the same plea bargain they offered Greg. Huh. 
So at that time, there was absolutely there was no women on death row. They were asking for the death sentence, which the prosecutors apparently it would have been like a risky move for him, but they did it anyway. Her trial began November 2nd, 1998. She faced a sequestered jury made up of 10 women and two men. And then television cameras were also off allowed in the room. I mean, in the courtroom. And then Doug's dad was also allowed in the courtroom. And he, after he gave his testimony and then there was us also bleh, <laughs> there was also two other women witnesses whose testimonies sent her to death row like yeah she didn't have a chance okay so greg owens was the state's number one witness most of his testimony matched his confession except where he referenced one difference that kelly actually showed up at the murder scene oh so the what was in question was when when did kelly actually get to the murder scene was she there during the murder or did she get there after greg said that she was there when doug was murdered Mm -hmm. he also testified that instead of them burning doug's car together she tossed a soda bottle filled with kerosene out of the window and he then retrieved it and burned the car alone so that's some of the discrepancy but hmm. either way it doesn't like they were both part of it and they know it yeah so then kelly began confiding in another inmate laura mcduffie and she asked her to uh, kelly asked her for some help in finding a witness that would take the blame for the murder for 10 grand so kelly even gave laura mcduffie a map of her house and then like a script of what to say so i think it was laura yeah kelly offered the money to laura and wanted laura mcduffie to take the blame for 10 grand what would 10 grand do for someone in jail i don't know a lot of fucking yeah so mcduffie was like hey she just gave me this and they were able to testify that it was kelly's handwriting which i don't know is handwriting analysis debunked Uh, i don't know so other witnesses for the prosecution testified about kelly's coldness when she learned that doug was murdered and then referenced that she was having an affair with doug i mean greg so many g's <laughs> pam testified that after kelly was arrested she called her who's wait pam was one of clo- kelly's closest friends sorry i forgot to introduce <laughs> pam so kelly called her and said that she killed doug and then she called pam again and said that greg forced her to do it by threatening to kill her and the kids the prosecutor george hutchison and kelly's defense lawyer edwin wilson presented really strong closing arguments on both sides her defense argued that the state prevailed failed to prove kelly's guilt beyond a reasonable doubt he referred to greg's testimony as being unbelievable and that it didn't seem possible that doug wouldn't fight greg because he was the guy in the army he that doug had combat training and served in a combat during desert storm so why would he go with him and not fight he also found it hard to believe that doug would willingly drive to a deserted road right he also shared that greg received a life sentence with the possibility of parole only if he agreed to testify against kelly so it like if i were facing the death penalty and i could like that's the only reason he's getting out so who knows if he's telling the truth like he could have just said this stuff just to get out of jail in 25 years right course they gave him an incentive yeah he attempted to discredit the testimony of laura duffy just tearing down her character called her a hardcore criminal and that would do anything to scratch off some prison time so saying that she must made it up and then he said that kelly's friend pam testified that the day kelly was arrested that she called her and told her i did it and tried to argue that pam didn't hear kelly properly during the prosecution's closing argument he pointed out that no one can say what was going on through doug's mind when he was 
virtually kidnapped inside like that knife point from his own home. Right. But, you know, regardless of how it happened, Doug was dead and they knew the chain of events that led up to it. So attempt to discredit Pam's testimony. Prosecutor said that the defense was reinventing and mischaracterizing evidence. The prosecution argued Laura's credibility, pointing out that what she was testifying about really didn't matter. The evidence that of the crime was all the jury would need. Right. I mean, there is a reasonable doubt. Yeah. I mean, for a death sentence case, at least. You think so? Fuck. Yeah, there's too many questions. Mm -hmm. So the prosecution then referenced the 47 phone calls between Kelly and Greg that took place the days before the murder and how the exchange suddenly stopped afterwards, you know, asking why, why would they just stop, suddenly stop talking? Mm. So it only took two, the jury two hours to form a verdict. During the penalty phase... It only took them two hours. And then they said, the state of Georgia versus Kelly Renee Gissendaner verdict as to sentencing, we the jury find beyond a reasonable doubt statutory aggravating circumstances do exist in the case. We the jury fix the sentence to death. Fuck. So since her conviction, she's been, she was carcerated at um, Arendelle State Prison. And she was isolated in her cell. And she was the only woman out of 84 death row inmates. Wow. She was scheduled for execution by lethal injection on February 25th, 2015. But it was postponed due to bad weather to March 2nd, 2015. Dang. Right. It also got postponed again a third time because they questioned the drugs. Like the drugs were quote unquote cloudy. Like they weren't stored at proper temperatures. Mm-hmm. Regardless, she exhausted all of her appeals, which included a 53-page application for clemency. She tests with testimonials from a prison warden and then members of the clergy that she was reformed. She found God and she was asking for clemency. Even the Pope was asking for her clemency. However, Doug Gissendaner Sr. fought really, really hard like equally as hard as she was fighting for clemency to ensure that her sentence was carried out. He released a statement that said, this has been a long, hard, heartbreaking road for us. Now that this chapter in our nightmare is over, Doug would want us, what Doug would want us and all of the people who loved him to find peace, to remember the happy times and cherished memories we have of him. We should all strive every day to be the kind of person he was. Never forget him. So after multiple 11th hour appeals and then more and all those delays, Kelly Renee Gissendaner, Georgia's only woman on death row, was executed by lethal injection. It was she was scheduled to die 7 p.m. Tuesday and she died by injection of phenobarbital at 12.21 a.m. The Supreme Court denied stays of execution three times on that Tuesday. Georgia State Supreme Court denied a stay and the Georgia Board of Pardons and Paroles declined to grant her clemency following a hearing at which Kelly's supporters offered new testimony. Yeah, and here, even Pope Francis became involved in the case, requesting mercy for the woman who conspired with her adulterous lover to stab her husband. She was the first woman in Georgia to be executed in 70 years. Damn. And that is the story of Kelly Gissendaner. Nice. Good job. Hmm. Yeah, that was a rough one. Hmm. Pretty sad. Hmm. Yeah. Okay, so Betty Lou Beats was born in Roxboro, North Carolina on March 12th, 1937. According to Betty, her childhood was filled with traumatic events, like her her parents were poor tobacco farmers and suffered from alcoholism. At age three, she lost her hearing after getting the measles. Oh, no. Um, So that disability affected her speech, and she never received hearing aids or special training on how to deal with her disability. What year was that again? 1937. Oh, wow. 
was an oldie. At age five, Betty alleged that she was raped by her father and was sexually abused by others throughout her childhood years. Wow. At the age of 12, she had to leave school to take care of her younger brother and sister after her mother was institutionalized. Wow. Age 12. She had to take care of some toddlers. Totally parentified. She didn't even get to be a kid. Mm -mm. At the age of 15, she married Robert Franklin Branson, and after their first year of marriage... Betty claimed the relationship was abusive and the couple separated. Betty attempted suicide in 1953, and Ooh. following this attempt, the two reunited and stayed married until 1969 and had five more children together. So Robert ultimately left Betty Lou and thus devastated her both financially and emotionally because he uh, was trash at paying child support. Oh. And he left her with the kids. Yeah. Well, of course. According to Betty, she didn't like being single and began to drink to chase away the loneliness. Her ex-husband did little to support the children, and the money she received from welfare agencies was inadequate. By late July 1970, Betty married again to Billy York Lane, but he too proved to be abusive, and they divorced. Mm. After the divorce, she and Billy continued fighting. He broke her nose and threatened to kill her, so Betty shot Billy four times in the back after he threatened her, but he survived. Wow. She was tried for attempted murder, but the charges were dropped after Lane admitted that he threatened her life. The drama of the trial must have rekindled their relationship because they remarried wow, right after opera. in 1972. And yeah. it only lasted one more month. Wow. The following year, Betty began dating Ronnie Threckold, whom she married in 1978. This marriage ended one year later after Betty attempted to run Ronnie over with her car. Yes. That same year, Betty, now 42, did 30 days in the county jail for public lewdness. She was arrested at a topless bar where she worked. I think she was, like, trying to fight someone there. It wasn't long before Betty married again, though. In 1979, she married her fourth husband, Doyle Wayne Baker. Doyle rules! (laughs) Her marriage to Baker was, again, short-lived, and in 1982, she had moved on to her fifth husband, Jimmy Don Beat. They're uncertain when she divorced from Doyle Wayne Baker, and this is because his bullet-ridden body was buried in her backyard. Wow. Uh, it was later determined that he was murdered in October 1981. Hmm. So not, a quite, not quite a year had passed since Doyle Baker's disappearance when Betty married again, this time in August 1982, to a retired Dallas fireman, Jimmy Don Beats. Jimmy Don survived the marriage for just under a year before she shot and killed him and buried his body in a specialty built, quote, wishing well in the front yard. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. To hide the murder, Betty solicited help from her son, Robert, oh my who they God. called Bobby, Franklin Branson II, Poor and kid. her daughter, Shirley Stegner. Oh, my God. Right? Betty told her son from a pre- previous marriage to leave the house because she intended to kill Jimmy. When her son returned home, he found Jimmy shot to death and helped his mom bury the body in the yard of their Texas home. On August 6, 1983, Betty reported her husband missing from their home near Cedar Creek Lake in Henderson County, Texas. And it wasn't until 1985 that evidence led police back to Betty. Betty was arrested on June 8th, 1985, almost two years after Jimmy Don Beats went missing. A confidential source gave information to the Henderson County Sheriff's Department that that indicated Jimmy Beats was possibly murdered. And that's when a search uh, warrant was issued for her home. So during the search warrant uh, or during the search of her property, 
Police located the remains of Jimmy Don Beats and the remains of her fourth husband, Doyle Wayne Baker. Wow. Both men had been shot in the head with the same thirty-eight caliber pistol. Yeah. Damn. <sighs> when investigators interviewed Betty Lou's children, Bobby and Shirley, they admitted to some involvement in helping to conceal the murders that their mother had committed. Shirley also testified in court that Betty told her of the, her plan to shoot and kill Doyle Wayne and that she helped dispose of his body. Hmm. Bobby testified that on August 6, 1983, he left his parents' home on the night that Betty told him she was going to kill Jimmy Don. Wow. He returned a few hours later to help his mother get rid of the body in the wishing well. According to her son, Betty put some of Jimmy Don's heart medication in his fishing boat the next day. Bobby and his mom then abandoned the boat in the lake. It was found on August 12, 1983, washed ashore near the Redwood Beach Marina. Believing that he'd fallen overboard and drowned, the police spent three weeks dragging the lake looking for Jimmy's body. Wow. Did they find it? No. It was buried in her wishing well. Oh, that's right. (laughs) Shirley (laughs) testified... Shirley testified that her mother called her to her home on August 6th when she arrived. She was told everything had been taken care of in regards to killing and disposing of Jimmy Don's body. Hmm. Betty's reaction to her children's testimony was to point the finger at them as the true killers of Jimmy Don Beats. Wow. The testimony given in court points to money as the reason she murdered both men. According to her daughter, Betty told her she needed to get rid of Doyle Wayne because he owned the trailer in Gun Barrel City, Texas that they lived in. And if they were to divorce, he would get it. Mm. As for killing Jimmy Don, she did it for insurance money and pension benefits that he might have had. Betty was found guilty on October 11th. The evidence of abuse was never presented to the court. Wow. During the separate penalty phase, three days later, she was sentenced to death and would serve this sentence at the Texas Department of Criminal Justice. And then she was incarcerated in the Mountain View unit on October 14th, 1985. An automatic appeal to the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals first overturned the conviction, saying that insurance and pension benefits were not the same as remuneration. Such a word. Remuneration. And, um... Basically, that means someone is doing something willfully and knowingly in exchange for a payment. Oh. Compensation. Okay. You're going to be compensated for doing something. So the state requested a hearing, a rehearing on September 21st, 1989, and this time the court ruled the conviction and sentence should stand. Ten years of appeals followed. Hmm. So holy shit, Betty Lou was in prison with Carla Faye Tucker and Darla Routier. No way. Yeah. Betty Lou began talking about how she killed her husbands out of self-defense because of the abuse. Many people actually came to her defense and her case received some media coverage. They claimed she suffered brain damage and battered woman syndrome and she should not have been given a guilty verdict or at least have her death sentence overturned. Mm-hmm. On June 26, 1989, an execution date was set for November 8th. On November 1st, she received a, she received a stay from the trial court after she filed a state habeas petition. In its simplest form, a writ of habeas corpus requires that a person who is in custody be brought before a judge or court and that they be able to challenge that custody. Mm-hmm. The writ of habeas corpus is used to attack an unlawful detention or illegal imprisonment. The Court of Criminal Appeals denied this request on June 27, 1990, leading to a second execution date of December 6th. 
A federal petition for a writ of habeas corpus was filed three days later because the first one was just state level. Mm -hmm. Now this is a federal. Three days before her scheduled execution and the federal district court granted a stay of execution on December 4th. Throughout the first half of 1991, evidentiary hearings were held. The United States Court of Appeals upheld the decision on March 18th, 1993. After her appeals were denied throughout 1990, uh, an execution date was set for February 24th, 2000. She was executed by lethal injection at 6.18 p.m. on February 24th, 2000 in the Huntsville unit. She did not request a final meal, nor did she make a final statement. Witnesses claimed she was smiling as she drifted off to, I guess, her death, you know. Mm. Uh, Betty was the second woman since the Civil War to be executed in Texas after the introduction of the death penalty. Do you remember who the first woman is? Carla Faye Tucker. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Carla Faye Tucker. At the time of the execution, she was 62 years old, had five children, nine grandchildren, and six great-grandchildren. Chil- 62? Mm-hmm. And so, like most executed criminals, she was cremated after her death and her ashes were scattered over her mother's graves. Wow. Uh And I got um, a lot of this from Thoughtco.com and CrimeMuseum.org. I like CrimeMuseum.org, too. Yeah, me too. Wow. That was a good one. Mm Mm-hmm. Couple of black widows. Yep. Man, I mean, yeah, she definitely had some trauma and abuse and they were assholes. So Mm -hmm. I understand why she would want to kill them. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Probably self-defense, too. Mm-hmm. Oh, my face is so cheap. So I listened to this week's episode of My Favorite Murder, and uh-huh. Karen talked about... Did you listen to it? No. Oh, shit. Well, Karen talks about Khalil... Yes, Weaver yes, yes, yes. And that's Anaja's um, friend from college's <gasps> brother. What? So that's the that's one happening who now. Yeah, smoked like hella blunts with and shit. Holy yeah. shit! When when she said his name, I was like, I literally like jumped. I was like, what? <laughs> Did you send it to Naja? No, I need to do that. I meant to do that. I was like multitasking. I was just like shook. Oh my as gosh! Fuck I heard her say his name. I was like, oh my god, because it's a crazy case. Yeah. It it really was, so, and then yes, yeah, so and I remember it, and then Anaja told us about it too. Mm-hmm. Wow, and that's crazy. So Anaja knows four murderers. <laughs> How two few degrees of separation? Just wow, that's nuts. <sighs> she just happens to meet murderers. Oh, <laughs> uh, what else you got about Lisa Montgomery? Oh yeah. Dude, so I got to hear the 911 calls. That's crazy. They um, played, like, her interrogation videos, which when you look at pictures of her, it's just like, you just see, like, like, yikes. When she's talking in her interviews, she's totally normal. Like, sounds normal, looks normal. You don't get that same, like, ooh, when you see her fucking mugshot or her pictures, you know? She's just not photogenic. Right. (laughs) Um... Uh, crime scene pictures. Oh, God. Yeah. So Bobby Joe's mother accurately described when she said it looks like her stomach exploded. It literally looked like a deflated ball. Wow. But, you know, with God taking out. Yikes. And I got to hold in my hand the birth announcements that fucking Lisa Montgomery wrote as soon as she got home with this stolen baby with Victoria Joe. And she literally still had Bobby Joe's blood under her nails. She still had her blood under her nails when they arrested her. That's crazy. It was such a weird feeling holding those. Yeah. Ugh, it was just like, God, like, you just did something so horrible and you just filled these out with, like, made up information. Well, because she was trying to prove so much that the baby was hers to get back at her ex. Mm-hmm. Did you listen to the recording I sent you? 
Not the whole thing. Yeah. I'm going to save it and listen to it. Yeah, there's some good stuff. Man, that's crazy. Mm-hmm. Were there a lot of people there? No. Really? Maybe like 10 to 15. Oh, that's more than I pictured in my head. Yeah. Man, they have a nice fucking law school. Like yeah. the courtroom was fancy as fuck that we were in. Oh, wow. And it was really cool. They had it set up like, oops, with like the evidence and the diagrams and huh. the calendar. And then she had the slideshow showing all the pictures and the videos. That's so cool. Yeah, it's very fancy. Wow. I didn't know that it was all there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's multiple courtrooms in the law school. I don't really have anything. Yeah. I've had like a downer of the week. Well. <laughs> but I last night I um watched a movie like the the sequel of To All the Boys I Love, P.S. I Love You. That really cute movie. Oh, I didn't watch that one. It's about this girl that wrote love letters that never sent them to the all her crushes as she was enter- before she entered high school. And her little sister mailed them out oh. to them, her crushes. It's really cute. I and recommend. Mm-hmm. And they made it to part two. It's really cute. It's really, really cute. So cute. Awesome. Well, we had a contest. Congrats. Oh, yeah. Congratulations. Congratulations, Marcy. Marcy, congrats. You won a brand new Echo Dot. And tell me, listen, you heard mine. That was basically, uh, there you go. Your life is now organized. Congrats. She will let you know. But All congrats. Right. That's awesome. That was exciting. Yay. All right, everybody. Have a great Thank you so much. Rate, week. interview, share that shit. Yep. Our website's womenofdeathrow.com. Womenofdeathrowpodcast.com. Is it possible? Everything's in the show notes. Cool. All right. All right. Have a great week. Bye. Bye.